is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. What caused the Civil War? We'll approach that simple question with some complex answers when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Hey, y'all. This is Stephen Cochran. As a country artist, I have traveled around this great country of ours, often meeting our brave men and women in uniform. And as a Marine and veteran of both the Iraq and Afghan conflict, I know how important it is to thank our troops who defend our freedom each and every day. One of the best ways to thank them is to give their children and spouses the gift of education. Scholarships for two years, four years, and vocational school. This is exactly what a national charity, Thanks USA, does. Please go to their website, www.thanksusa.org, to make a generous donation to the Thanks USA Scholarship Fund for the families of the troops, and I thank you. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ed Ayers, author of What Caused the Civil War, also in the presence of mine enemies, uh, also the creator of the uh, In the Valley of the Shadow online Internet Archive Project, uh, and president of the University of Richmond, uh, a polymath and a busy man, no doubt. Um, Ed, your description of the the website, In the Valley of the Shadow, uh, really, I'm sure has uh, listeners right now abandoning the show to go look at it. (laughs) Uh, instantly, it really is. A <laughs> if I hadn't driven away before, but uh, but l- let me ask you about this because it, the, the nature of uh, the relationship of the historian, uh, the reader, and the sources in a case like this, uh, there is uh, a, a new biography of Abraham Lincoln just out by Michael Burlingame, who has who is really a master of the the sources on Lincoln, who has discovered many many new previously unpublished uh, sources, uh, bits of source material about Lincoln, and wrote originally a four-volume uh, massive biography in which he included pretty much everything he'd ever found. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know a lot of the editors and manuscript readers urged him to trim this, and eventually it got trimmed, and he you know, agreed to that more or less cheerfully, but his ambition, and maybe it's going to happen, is to have all his source material online so that the reader can find out not just the 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 one quote that he chooses, but the mm-hmm. 19 others he could have chosen. Um, on the one hand, I think it's a wonderful thing and, and a great resource. On the other hand, isn't it the historian's responsibility uh, to do some of this work for the reader, to decide what uh, what is there? It is when I go, when I take my car into the shop later today, I don't want them to lay out a series of parts and say, here, you decide which one should go in. <laughs> That's great. No, I agree completely, which is why I intended from the very beginning to write a book out of the Valley of the Shadow Archive. Um, and um, I think people can see, okay, this is the historian's gift, is to find a pattern out of this welter of stuff. You know, the difference between what you described with uh, Michael Burlingame and the Valley of the Shadow is a lot of it's, a database, it being the value of the shadow, it's numbers, it's, you know, maps, it's things that are, again, it goes back to our conversation about what social history is. I've always thought that the kind of history I'm fascinated doing is weaving together all these disparate pieces 
uh, not just, a, you know, here's, I'm going to cho- choose this line from this letter and so forth, but here's the pattern I'm finding in the OR, or here is, um, here's something from the compiled service record in which I'm noticing that the men who seem to die most often are the second sons. And then you notice, well, that's because that the oldest sons did not um, enlist as early. And you start thinking, well, that's you know makes sense when you think about the family dynamics and who's inheriting the farm and all that sort of stuff. But to me, that's the that's what's most exciting is taking a row of figures or a, a, a fragment of a letter from an enslaved woman who's being sold and weaving that into some kind of coherent pattern. So uh, you're exactly right, though. It, that's what a historian does is sees patterns that other people who are, don't think about this for a living might not see right off the bat. Now, uh, on the other hand, you pointed out historians can take this too far in terms okay. of imposing patterns or, or finding simple patterns in the complexity of the past. Um, you use the phrase in, in, in your essay on what causes civil war, a deep contingency yeah. uh, as, as a way of explaining So What does that mean? Yeah, I was afraid you'd ask that. That's hard. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've been struck, and you know, when I did start reading a lot about the Civil War, I mean, I'd, I've been a historian for 15 years before, a historian of the 19th century American South <laughs> for 15 years before I really uh, decided that it was time to tackle the central event in the history of that region. And um, when I did, I started reading Civil War history, and I thought, I can't believe people just have like six quotes and are making claims about the entire explanation of why the North or the South did what they did. And uh, I will not name any books, but we can all imagine books in which that's the way the arguments are made, you know, and people want to argue that, you know, it's about slavery, so they quote Alexander Stevens in the Cornerstone speech, and it's like, aha, there it is, I've nailed it. Or they want to say that it's, you know, uh, just economic, you you know how that works. Everybody, you can go back into these things of biblical proportions and find quotes to say whatever you want to say. And since my whole stick had been, you know, triangulating uh, the experience of people who did not necessarily have the opportunity to say why they were doing what they were doing from the way they acted by looking at patterns that are hidden in numbers and large masses of uh, of uh, you know, newspaper accounts and things like that. I decided that uh, I was frustrated with the explanations we have for the Civil War, which tended to be very linear. And I, I've been I've taught a bunch of high school teachers over the last few weeks. And I, you walk in the room and you say, okay, what caused the Civil War? And people will give you the same five answers, okay? It was either agrarian versus industrial, or it was, uh, you know, just slavery without actually saying exactly how, or it was the abolitionists, or the South wanted to protect its way of life. And I was struck over and over again that people just have these formulas that they think explains the Civil War. And then you push a little bit, and you turned out that they don't really have a very clear sense of how an agrarian nation, an industrial nation, why they had to go to war to kill the equivalent of six million of each other. And you'll hear people saying old things from 1920s books, you know, like the beards, that it was about the tariff and stuff. And you go, well, which tariff was that? And, of course, <laughs> they don't have any idea. Or people talk about, I quote in my essay, The Simpsons, and Apu, the owner of the Quickie Mart, is yeah. taking his American citizenship test because he's going to be, there's nativism in Springfield, and he studies the Civil War, and the guy says, what caused the Civil War? And he says, well, there are many causes, both domestic and international. The guy says, just say slavery. And he says, slavery it is, sir. 
<laughs> you know, and, and I say, why is that funny? It's not because the answer is not slavery, but it's because we've learned if you can just say that, <laughs> that that counts as an explanation. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to wade into this and see if how it were how it was that with a war that nobody intended and that nobody foresaw anything that would have endured for four years and killed 620,000 people and brought the largest and most dynamic system of slavery in the modern world to an immediate, uncompensated end, which no matter who you were, what your politics were in 1860, you could not have imagined that. And so that was my principle. I'm not going to round off all the corners. I'm not going to, you know, file this square peg to fit into this round hole. I'm just going to look at the array of evidence. I'm going to look at Virginia and Pennsylvania, these two places that uh, were central in the war, uh, where, you know, enormous, you know, Virginia is just devastated. And yet we knew that it went into the war reluctantly. And, of course, white Virginia's explanation was that they were forced into it by Abraham Lincoln or by honor or whatever, and that the very reluctance to fight showed the purity of their motives. And so, you know, both the Valley of Shadow and the Presence of Mine Enemies go back and actually watch this process unfold, and you realize that January of 1861, people in Virginia say they hate South Carolina and secession is treason, and then four months later they vote to secede. And then they, they fight far more doggedly than people in the Deep South for the war. So how is it that Virginians and Pennsylvanians with the same soil, same crops, same climate, you know, same major trading cities are willing to kill each other? And this struck me as not likely to be easily reduced to these formulas that we have. It was a modern North and an anti-modern South and all these kinds of things. So my premise is that the best explanation in history is an explanation that accounts for the most evidence. I don't know if you'd accept that or not, but that's, that's what I think is, defines a great historian, is the person who can account for the most evidence, the same way we would in science, you know? How much can you explain with this hypothesis and this conclusion? So when you get into all that, you recognize that there are almost no straight lines in any of this, that there's no, that turns out that there's no correlation statistically between slaveholding and votes for secession. It turns out that, um, that the slave population of the South was worth more than all the railroads and factories of the North combined. It turns out that the South was the fourth richest economy in the world in 1860. It turns out that 90-some percent of white Northerners are farmers. and you, know, this, you don't have to push on it very hard for this very widespread belief, which lets everybody off the hook, uh, that the war is just between industry and farming or whatever. And you realize that it's about slavery, but to say it's about slavery turns out to be, well, if you've only got 3% of the people in the North who identify themselves as abolitionists, and you've got 45% of the people in the North voting against Abraham Lincoln as late as 1864, and you've got, you know, uh, uh, massive numbers of people who are big slaveholders voting against secession and a large number of people who are not slaveholders voting for secession, that's likely not as simple as the fairy tales that we tell about it are. So I said, that's where the deep part comes, which is actually more important than the contingency part. And contingency is kind of common sense that stuff happens that we're not expecting and that you, know, you can't predict the outcome of different battles and stuff. What was different about what I'm arguing is that uh, how can people decide 
that they are going to change the entire locus of their identity from the United States to the Confederacy in a matter of weeks. And how can they decide that God has changed his mind, that he wanted the United States, now he wants the Confederacy? And so I decided that was a, a abrupt change in people's deepest beliefs and sorts of identity, and that um, that's what's surprising is that these deep identities could change so abruptly with a battle or with a vote. So that's what I'm trying to do with deep contingency. And it's not just explain the coming of the war, but the way that the war is changing its purpose all the way across it. And I must admit that I find that people find this frustrating, that it's kind of like you said, I thought there was a great line about when you go to the garage, you don't just lay out a bunch of parts and say, here, fix your own car. And people sometimes think that, A, boy, I'm glad somebody actually finally pointed this out, or B, uh, come on, don't be a man. What's the answer? <laughs> don't, don't pussyfoot around on all this. And, you know, uh, so I'm trying to open up the conversation. Uh, we've not really had a new fundamental interpretation of the Civil War since World War II. Uh, we've always, you know, it's, we've locked into this binary north-south, you know, uh, kind of, um, uh, we've read the Civil War backwards. So that's been my mission, is to try to have us know less about the war than we think we do. <laughs> what do you think of, of William Freeling's work then? Uh, he was on a show, some listeners may remember, who, who argues that there were multiple Souths and that there were certainly a lot of contingencies involved. Does that uh, push in the, the, the revisionist direction you're interested in? Uh, no, not really. Uh, Bill's a friend of mine, and he and I have talked about this personally. I admire his work a lot. But he still has, I'm pointing out that Virginia, which he would see as a kind of a, a watered-down South, mm-hmm. you know, A, was the largest slave state in 1860, and B, last time I checked, played a central role in the Confederacy start to finish. My argument is that slavery is slavery right up to the border, right up to the very last minute, and that uh, what's amazing is how all this diverse South congealed, crystallized around this new identity of Confederate. And so... I'm sort of Bill Freeling turned wrong side out uh, in the sense that uh, I'm struck by, that's what the contingent part, is that people who had nothing in common except that they were part of uh, slaveholding states, and you see here, obviously, Kentucky and Maryland didn't follow the same path. That's the deep contingency part, and that uh, these fundamental life and death changes can not happen just because, as Bill says, by, you know, somebody talking about a railroad in Charleston and that kind of I'm talking about deep contingency in which people's right. fundamental change. So it's, it's fundamentally different. It, it's not the for want of a nail kind of contingency. No, it's really not. And I, I wish I'd used a word other than contingency, in fact. I don't know what I wish I had used, but precisely because Jim McPherson used the word, and I'm using it, and again, in kind of an opposite way from Jim, um, and instead to, to show how undetermined even slavery made things. So that's a, people either think it's, it's just kind of on the surface or that it's fundamentally hardwired. And I'm trying to show how you can have something that is hardwired and still be um, open-ended and surprising and makes us very fortunate the Civil War turned out the way that it did with slavery being and brought to an end because that was certainly by no means preordained. Well, I think one of the interesting points you make when you talk about how, how un, undetermined this is uh, it, you raise the point that you can describe a person and whether they owned slaves or uh, what part of the country they were from and so on, 
and that this doesn't tell you if they would have been a, a Whig or a Democrat in the 1850s or 1840s. Yeah. Uh, just as today, uh, uh, you could probably use with your students. Uh, you can learn a lot about a person without being able to deduce who they would vote for in a given election. Yeah, I mean, you uh, could say, I, I really don't want to get off on all this, but because uh, I have only a few minutes left, and I'd rather talk about <laughs> the Civil War. <laughs> but, you know, why are rich people voting for Obama who's already identified that he's going to tax them? You know, I mean, it, many do. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 so that just shows that it, and that's one reason I write history like this is to make it, I always quote my mom, who's a fifth grade school teacher for 30 years, and I told her I was going to go to graduate school in history. She says, what for, honey? We already know what happened. <laughs> and my whole point has been, if you feel that way, then why am we, are we spending our life doing this? The point is, is that we know only the barest outlines of what happened, and it's the stuff inside the outlines and over the side, back of the page and all that that's really interesting. Let me throw a quick theoretical okay. question at you. Um, Occam's razor tells us the best explanation is the most elegant one, uh, but you're arguing almost, uh, maybe, you're, maybe this is caricaturing your argument, but uh, a lot of historians seem to value complexity for its own sake. Yeah. Well, that's because you have to justify why would you spend your life studying something. Well, it must be really complex, right? Uh, so I, I accept that. Um, but uh, the, um, an explanation of physical phenomenon should be as direct as possible. I take for granted that humans are really complicated, and any satisfactory explanation of why we do the things we are will also be complicated. Well... You know, I'm hearing the music again. There's so much we haven't talked about. There's yeah. uh, Backstory, your your radio program. Uh, Backstoryradio.org. People li- can go and, down and, and listen to our uh, broadcast. And, and listeners, you'll want to do that. You'll want to get uh, in the presence of my enemies. You'll want to look at the Valley of the Shadow Project online. You can do that right now. And uh, especially for a, a short introduction to a fascinating historian, What Caused the Civil War? Reflections on the South and Southern History by Edward L. Ayers. Uh, I cannot recommend highly enough. Ed, thank you so much uh, for taking time to be on the show today. It was my great pleasure and, uh, and honor. Thank you so much, Greg. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Talking World Talk Radio Studio A.